This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. And if you'd like to contribute, I'll leave the link to the Patreon below. So this podcast is about a little girl named Jeannie. She was basically a feral child. Research has shown me that Jeannie is not actually her true name, So I didn't dig to find out what it actually was just to save her anonymity. This podcast most likely will be upsetting to some sensitive viewers or listeners who are particularly sensitive when it comes to children, the abuse and neglect of children. So I want to give my disclaimer disclaimer. Okay, guys, this one gets a little rough. Jeannie was born on April 18, 1957, and lived in Temple City, California, which is in the northeastern area of Los Angeles. So let's get into some history for that time. The average cost of living in 1957 was rather decent. The average cost of a new house was $12,220, or rent was just $90 a month. And again, this is an average. Yearly wages were, on average, $4,550 a year, and a gallon of gas was just 24 cents a gallon. During this time, Egypt reopened the Suez Canal after some war broke out in the area over the control of that canal, including the United Nations. In Singapore, there was an agreement that allowed it to have its independence while Great Britain still controlled its military, island defense, and external affairs. The Asian flu pandemic, originating in China, killed about 150,000 people all over the world. The flu was caused by a mutation in wild ducks combining with a pre-existing human strain of the flu. Also this year, the Viet Cong guerrillas attacked South Vietnam. This of course would eventually lead to the Vietnam War. And this is also the peak year of the birth of the baby boomers in the U.S. This is referring to the sharp increase in human births after World War II and the soldiers got back home. However, the House for Un-American Activities Committee convicted a number of writers and playwrights for, quote, un-American activities or being members of the Communist Party. Elvis Presley this year bought Graceland in Memphis, which was his mansion and home. The Cavern Club opened in Liverpool, where the Beatles started, and the film Jailhouse Rock premiered starring Elvis. So this was the atmosphere that Jeannie was born into. 
Her family history is filled with misfortune. Her father, Clark, was from the Pacific Northwest area like Oregon or Washington. Clark's parents had woes of their own. His dad had died from a lightning strike and his mother apparently ran a brothel and was therefore too busy to spend time with him. This left Clark mostly growing up in orphanages. Clark's original first name given to him by his mother was a feminine one, so he was the recipient of constant bullying. This in turn made him feel intense hatred toward his mother, which scientists believe was the root cause of his horrific anger problems. Once Clark was grown, he changed his first name to a more masculine one that would be more acceptable to him, or at least in his eyes. And then oddly, his mother kind of just latched onto him. It was sort of in a very creepy way. This, in turn, just aggravated Clark's issues with his mother to the point that he was nearly fixated on her. But they argued a lot because his mother wanted him to relax his intense and stubborn tendencies, which only further taught him that personal relationships were only secondary to his own true feelings. Jeannie's mother, Irene, had been from Oklahoma. Sources say she sustained a substantial head injury when she was a young child that left her with ongoing neurological damage, including degenerative vision problems in one eye. Irene's family had been forced to leave Oklahoma and move west to get away from the terrible Dust Bowl. Now, the Dust Bowl has a very interesting and rich history. If you're interested in that at all, I highly recommend Googling the Dust Bowl. So, Irene had been a teenager once they landed in Southern California. At some point, Clark and Irene met and they got married. To outside observers, they seemed like a pretty happy couple. But it didn't take long for Clark to begin to physically abuse Irene. He also forbade her from leaving the house for really any reason. Now, Irene already had vision problems, but the beatings only exacerbated the issue and she developed severe cataracts, a detached retina in one eye, and therefore she was nearly completely dependent upon her husband. And make no mistake, Clark made no bones about not ever wanting to have children. In fact, he hated children. He found them intolerable, noisy, and just awful. But about five years after they were married, Irene became pregnant. Clark beat her during the entire pregnancy and even toward the end of that pregnancy, tried to strangle Eileen to death, but was unsuccessful. But a baby girl was born who was said to be quite healthy. But as babies do, she began to cry and this angered Clark greatly. So he placed the infant out in the garage where she soon developed pneumonia and died at just 10 weeks old. Irene became pregnant again around a year after that and the baby was born alive, 
but only survived for two days due to an RH incompatibility, meaning blood types being positive or negative and it not being compatible. But Clark would not tolerate the baby making a sound and demanded Irene keep the baby quiet at all times. This obviously led to, quote, significant physical and linguistic developmental delays, unquote. Once the boy was four years old, her mother decided to take the boy with him to try to work with him because she saw some troubling things. She cared for him for several months, but then eventually gave the child back to his parents. Now, during those months, the son had actually made incredible progress. Jeannie was born a year later when her one surviving older brother was five years old. It was at this point that Clark had already begun to isolate the entire family, himself included, from the outside world. When she was born, sources say that she was at the 50th percentile for weight. Of course, she was positive for the RH incompatibility and had to have a blood transfusion to save her life. Outside of that, she was healthy. So she was taken in at three months old for a typical checkup. And while her weight was average, they did notice she had a congenital hip dislocation which forced her to have to wear a harness of sorts for the rest of the time until she was nearly a year old. Due to this, of course, it put a pretty decent delay on her ability to start walking. But Clark had decided she was mentally disabled and he altogether stopped speaking to or paying attention to his little girl. Clark also told his wife and son to not have anything to do with her either. Irene later told conflicting stories about Jeannie's toddlerhood. She said that Jeannie was able to speak a few words clearly, and then she later said that Jeannie had never actually spoken a word ever. At a year old, her weight had fallen down to the 11th percentile. Then a couple of months after that, she became very sick and her parents took her to a completely different doctor who had never seen her. The doctor treated her illnesses, of course, but suggested there very well might be something wrong with Jeannie's mental development, which spurred Clark on even worse. Then, once Jeannie was nearing two years old... Clark's mother and Jeannie's brother had gone for a walk and his mother was killed in a hit-and-run accident. Jeannie's brother had survived, but Clark's rage went completely out of control as he blamed the death on his son. The driver was only sentenced to probation for manslaughter and drunk driving, which made Clark become even more delusional. It was at this point, Clark decided society was evil and horrible. He also decided to hide Jeannie's existence from then on. He quit his job. He moved into his mother's house. He forbade anyone to sleep in his mother's room or even get in her car. Those were like sacred things to him. Now, Jeannie was allowed to have the one bedroom that was left in the house. It was in the back of the house, while everyone else slept in the living room. For 13 hours a day, 
every single day. Clark kept Jeannie tied up in a homemade straitjacket sort of contraption and shackled her to a child's potty chair. The only thing she wore was a diaper and she would only be able to move her very, the very ends of her extremities. When it was time to sleep, she was basically tied to the inside of her crib and then a lid fashioned out of chicken wire was secured over the top, effectively caging her in. If she made any noise whatsoever and he heard it, he would come into the room in a rage and he would beat her with a plank of wood he kept in the room at all times to shut her up. So, get this. To further terrorize his own small daughter, he would curl his lips up and growl at her like an angry dog. He would also claw her with his fingernails that he let grow longer on purpose to be able to do this. If he even suspected her of making a noise, he would stand outside the door and growl and hiss like a dog or a cat to make her be quiet. He effectively conditioned Jeannie to not make any sounds and to just be still and quiet. Clark also fed Jeannie as little as possible, and when she was fed, it was nothing solid. She was fed baby food, cereal, soft-boiled egg on occasion, or other liquids, and he or her brother would shove the helpings into her mouth as fast as they possibly could, which of course would make her choke, so then they would smear the food on her face. Sometimes Clark would allow Irene to see Jeannie, but she was never allowed to actually feed her. Irene did on occasion, though terrified if she tried, she would sneak additional food in to her daughter. And now it wasn't just Jeannie that wasn't allowed to make any noise. Clark would not tolerate any noise on any level, so they didn't listen to the radio, they didn't watch television. And if Irene or her brother accidentally spoke out of turn, Clark would beat them severely. And again, they were not allowed to speak to Jeannie whatsoever. So with no real communication going on or around or within earshot of Jeannie herself, she never was really able to develop any language skills. And she also never really got any level of healthy sunlight. Clark kept her window curtained all the way up with a very dark curtain, letting only a few inches of light peek through from the very top. So as she got older, Clark permitted her to play with things like old spools of thread, plastic food containers, random raincoats that were in her room, and even old TV guides. For years, Clark did not allow anyone in the family to even leave the house. Surprisingly, he did actually permit his son to go to school, but he had to come immediately home, and then his father forced him to show ID to prove that it was really him before he would let his own son back in the house. 
Oh, and the icing on the cake was that Clark would sit on the couch with his gun in his lap just in case anyone might try to think about crossing him. Literally no one in the neighborhood or anyone else really even knew that Jeannie existed. Now, interestingly, Clark kept a very detailed journal about how he treated his family and how much effort he had put into hiding what he was doing from the world. At this point, Irene was nearly completely blind, but Clark continued to threaten to kill her if she even tried to contact her own parents or even the police. As the children kept aging, Clark forced Jeannie's brother to go into Jeannie's room and beat her himself. Her brother couldn't stand it, and he actually tried to run away from home several times. So, in October of 1970, Jeannie was 13 and a half years old. Clark and Irene had gotten into this horrible fight, and Irene had threatened to leave the house if he did not allow her to at least call her parents. He finally relented, and then he left the house to do some grocery shopping, and that's when Irene grabbed Jeannie and fled from the house. At this point, Jeannie's brother was 18 and had left. So she fled to her parents' house, and then three weeks later, she decided to try to get disability benefits due to her vision issues so that she could have some level of income to try to take care of herself and Jeannie. But due to her really poor vision, she entered the wrong door and wound up going into the social services door that was next to it. The social workers immediately knew that something was terribly wrong. There in front of them hobbled in a stooped-over waif of a little girl who appeared to be about six to seven years old. She was possibly nonverbal autistic. So they called the police. Now, both of Jeannie's parents were arrested, and she became a, quote, ward of the court due to her physical and mental condition, and she was taken to the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. At the hospital, they discovered that she was incontinent, meaning not able to hold her urine. She could barely chew and swallow food. She was unable to focus her eyes completely. She weighed only 59 pounds, or for the rest of the world, 27 kilos, and she had two complete sets of teeth. This is indeed a rare dental condition. And they discovered that she was actually over 13 years old. As the picture of her severe neglect and complete lack of language or social training became more and more clear, they knew they had to do something. And then this story hit the news like a bomb. Reporters went to Clark's house to try to speak to him or they would approach him as he was being walked into the courthouse to get an interview, asking him why he had locked his daughter away like that. He said, quote, no comment. Both Clark and Irene were charged with abuse, but Clark decided he was done. So he took his gun and he shot himself, committing suicide. He did leave behind a note that read, quote, The world will never understand, unquote. 
And he's right, we don't. Eventually, the charges against Irene were dropped because it was quite clear that between her near-complete blindness and the horrific beatings from her husband, she had had really no way to protect her children. She was given counseling from the children's hospital as well. Now, the medical staff at the hospital, which consisted mostly of psychiatrists, took over Jeannie's complete care. Initial reports stated that she was by far the most severe case of child abuse they had encountered and the prognosis was not good. She was extremely malnourished and only four feet six inches tall. The bruising from the restraints apparently took weeks to heal. Her hip sockets were malformed and she had an undersized rib cage and she had the bones of an 11-year-old. She did have normal vision, but she just was not able to focus her eyes past 10 feet because that was quite literally the size of the room she'd spent all of her life in. Jeannie was unable to stand up straight. She couldn't fully straighten out her arms or her legs. She had very little energy, and she was hesitant and quite unsteady on her feet. Her fine motor skills were calculated to be at about a two-year-old's level. Again, she was not capable of chewing or swallowing foods and had a hard time swallowing liquids. She had an extreme fear of cats and dogs, no doubt due to the noises that her father made to her to get her to shut up. Most of her new interests were more about things than people. She would approach people, but it didn't seem to register to her that they were separate beings, if that makes sense. There were no signs of attachment, and that included her own mother and brother, who she had no boundaries and didn't care to take other people's things that were not hers. And disclaimer, 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 she would openly masturbate at completely inappropriate and random times and would encourage older men to join in. Now, this could be an indication of possible sexual abuse, but they could never find out conclusively. Now, if Jeannie became upset, she would physically abuse herself quite violently. And yet, when she did this, there was zero expression on her face. She never cried or socialized the pain she inflicted upon herself. So it was determined that she only displayed a knowledge of her name and the names of only a few others, and she had about a 15 to 20 word vocabulary. Mostly she just said, quote, stop it, or quote, no more. You see, it is believed that beyond a certain age, it is simply too late. The verbal language window seems to close between the ages of five and 10. And it was determined that she was not autistic at all. She had a, quote, high level of emotional disturbance, unquote. There was no evidence of brain damage, but she did have a greatly reduced amount of REM sleep, rapid eye movement. They said she had been born with normal, average intelligence and that the abuse and neglect had created her current state. Though she had a long road ahead, she did quickly learn how to dress herself and she loved playing with puppets. She learned to use the restroom 
appropriately, but never did stop having accidents. She did quickly begin to hoard possessions, though, and would become highly agitated if anyone touched her things. But ultimately, she would go on to learn actually hundreds of words fairly quickly. She became much more steady on her feet and even learned how to somewhat run. After all the tests were run, audio recordings performed, brain scans filed. Most of the interest in her began to fade in the late 1970s. In other words, when the scientists had gotten all the raw data that they could or needed, did come to visit her. She shrank away from any form of physical contact at first. Her behavior was quite antisocial and she was hard to control. She drooled and spit near constantly, as well as blowing her nose on anything and everything. They were done. Sure, there had been plenty of infighting with regards to who had rights to Jeannie, but once the grant money was gone, that changed. She was moved into an inadequate foster home, but then Irene was able to get custody of Jeannie back once she was 18 years old, but only briefly. Being that she was blind and Jeannie being so special needs, she simply was not equipped with what it would take to take care of someone in her situation. So though Irene didn't want to, she was forced to put Jeannie back into foster care. Not to mention they were forced to live in that same horrid house. Can you imagine that Jeannie would even want to go back there? So then when the foster homes wouldn't work, she would be put into state institutions. It was at this point that she began to regress. Her condition deteriorated. Sources say one place she was put into beat her after she had thrown up. And after that, she would never really eat very well. And she lost most of her progress after that. Sent from institution to foster home, back to institution, she was regularly abused and she became completely withdrawn. And let's not forget Jeannie's older brother, right, who also suffered grievously under their father. The life he lived, in his own words, were like a, quote, dead man and failed his own daughter, who in turn failed her daughter's. If Jeannie is still alive, she would be 63 years old now, but no one knows where she is or if she's still alive. So doctors called her, quote, the most profoundly damaged child they had ever seen, unquote. So let's look at that. As we already know, children's reaction to abuse or neglect can have lifelong and even intergenerational impacts which is what we saw with Jeannie's brother and then his family abuse and neglect contribute to the stunted physical development of the child's brain and lead to psychological problems high-risk behaviors and so on the level of underdevelopment depends on the severity of the abuse as well as the age at which it occurs or is stopped. According to childwelfare.gov, the long-term health risks are diabetes, lung disease, malnutrition, vision problems, functional limitations, heart attack, arthritis, back problems, high blood pressure, 
brain damage, migraine headaches, chronic illness, stroke, bowel disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, and even cancer. The stress related to the abuse and neglect quite literally affects the immune system and the very cells of your body. Child abuse and neglect have also been associated with certain regions of the brain failing to form, function, and grow properly. There is a correlation with actual reduced volume and overall brain size as well as the connections and communications between the regions of the brain, such as the amygdala. And if you've been with me for any amount of time, you know how important the amygdala is. Guys, whoa. It is key in processing emotions. And then the hippocampus, which is central to learning and memory. The orbitofrontal cortex, which is responsible for reinforced based decision-making and emotion regulation. That's this part up here. The cerebellum, which helps coordinate motor behavior and executive functioning. And then the corpus callosum, which is responsible for left brain, right brain communication, as well as the process of arousal, emotion, and the higher cognitive abilities. And then we have the attachment and social difficulties. You see, attachment is that deep bond established between a child and their parent or primary caregiver, and it hugely impacts the child's development and their ability to express emotions and build strong relationships later. Attachment disorders are all in different podcasts of mine. If you've been listening, you know, you've heard it. Attachment disorders do kind of fall on a spectrum where the more severe end being the child is unable to establish healthy attachments with anyone. They have difficulty regulating their emotions. They do not trust or feel a sense of self-worth. They can't have people getting close to them and they lash out in anger for kind of a need of control. They feel unsafe and alone. They may experience difficulty relating to others and are often developmentally delayed. Reactive attachment disorder is common in children who have been abused, bounced around in foster care, living in orphanages, or taken away from their primary caregiver after establishing a bond. So guys, this girl suffered. I cannot imagine locking a little girl for 13 and a half years into a room she was tied down basically into a potty chair not able to get up or walk around she could only move her hands and her feet she was left naked barely fed the entire family was told to basically not speak to this girl not acknowledge her in any way so she spent how many days and days and weeks and months and years where she couldn't even hear people speaking, that the only sounds outside of maybe some neighborhood noise coming through the window with the tiny amount of sunlight that would come through at the top, she never heard anything. Maybe growls and and hisses through the door from her father, which would be absolutely terrifying, but outside of that, nothing. No stimulation, nothing. Can you imagine? What do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or leave me a comment on the YouTube channel. Um, You can visit my website serialkilling.squarespace.com and mostly I just want to say thank you so much for listening. 
because I know you could be listening to anyone else and you chose me and I'm still so humbled by that. Thank you so, so much and have a great day.